Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And we're bringing you a kind of short episode today, but that's because we wanted to cover updates to a couple of things we've talked about this year. That's right. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a show about science, of course, but we also discuss history, philosophy, mythology, various other subjects on the show. But of course, we do so with science as the bedrock. And science, as we frequently discussed, is perpetually in a state of change. It's that slime mold working its way through the maze of reality. And so pretty much, Nothing that we record is guaranteed to be evergreen, as they say in the you know the publishing world. Well, sure. It's, uh, the the kind of funny irony is that science is probably it's the best tool we have for understanding reality, but it's very rarely the final word because right. it's all you know we're always getting a better idea. That's it's one of the reasons I cringe when people talk about starting the the the, the podcast back from the beginning from ten years ago. <laughs> I mean, part of it is like when I when we started out, like we didn't really know what we were doing, uh, but. Then also, you know, it's like the science changes. Like we have, there's an older episode on Neanderthals, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I don't really recommend anyone listen to that because there's been so much, there's been so, been so many more studies about Neanderthals since the publication of that episode. I just don't, I don't trust the science to be uh, uh, 100% accurate or to be the best version of uh, of our understanding. Well, I hope the way we approach things now, we, we try to make episodes at least partially evergreen, baking in the idea that, you know, results are tentative. The, you know, yeah. the, the outcome of one study is not the answer forever. You know, things in the future could upend it. Oh, oh, absolutely. I, I, I do think we, we do that. But, uh, but yeah, today's episode is going to be about doing a little upkeep on a couple of – well, one is a, a recent episode or a pair of episodes from this year. Another is an older episode from 2017 that we also recently reran back in October. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, the, the main thing, too, is that both of these are exciting topics uh, where new findings uh, can kind of change the way we understand – the cosmos or understand the the history of, of humanity. Yeah, and I guess also both of these uh, findings have to do with primacy, right? Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, let's go straight into the first one. And this concerns the episode that we recorded, I guess it was a couple years ago, and then re-ran about the idea of the first monster. Yeah, back in 2017, uh, we recorded an episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind titled The First Monster. And again, we re-ran it in, in this most recent October. But in the episode, we discussed uh, the Lion Man or the Loanmensch, uh, which was this this figure that resembled uh, that was a a human with a lion's head, a hybrid, a, a hybrid being combining animal and human likeness into a single likeness. Yeah. Now this was uh, this particular uh, um, artifact. The the Loanmensch was discovered in 1939 at a Stone Age cave site known as Stadelhol or Stable Cave at uh, Holenstein near Vogelherd in Germany. Uh, but it would be another 30 years before anyone got a chance to examine these broken pieces of ivory uh, due to uh, the world wars. But uh, eventually, 30 years later, that's when German archaeologist Joachim Hahn discovered that these 200 fragments came together to form a 31 centimeter or just over a foot long figure, carbon-14 dated to, to, to between 35 and 40,000 years old. Uh, it had the body of a man and the head of a lion. In 2003, another lion man was discovered in southwestern Germany. This one was carbon dated to around the same time period. And by, by some estimates, 
you know, first of all, these are amazing. Just be, for no other reason, they're just uh, they're just fascinating figures that uh, that give us some insight into what uh, ancient people were doing and what they were making. But they also seemed to be the oldest uh, examples of figurative art. You know, we've seen uh, the the Venus of Hohenfels uh, take the title before. I think uh, it's from thirty five thousand to forty thousand years ago. Discovered in two thousand eight and two thousand sixteen. But um, you know, while the the Venus is the depiction of the feminine form, the Lohenmensch is a human fused with the beast. Yeah, and this is what we were drawing attention to in the episode: the idea that this is the earliest example that we knew about of fantasy art. It is an imagined being. Yeah. Uh, as uh, stated by Clive Gamble, an archaeologist at the University of Southampton, UK, as quoted in Nature, quote, they depict an animal world in a semi-realistic way. It shows early man moving from his immediate world to an imaginative world. So that's just a brief breakdown of the Lohenmensch. Uh, certainly go back and listen to that episode that we did if you want more on that topic. But uh, here's the cool thing, and I imagine a number of you have, have caught this news already because it was covered in a number of places. I even saw it featured on Stephen Colbert's show. Oh. But in December of 2019, a new discovery was made, and it might just blow the Lion Man and the Venus out of the water. This is so cool. Yeah. So this story takes us to a different corner of the world. It takes us to Sulawesi, Indonesia, one of the four greater Sunda islands, and it's actually the world's 11th largest island, I read. So we've known about uh, Pleistocene settlements in the area for quite some time. And early Homo sapiens are known to have reached uh, this area between 60,000 and 45,000 years ago. Previous studies from some of the, the same um, archaeologists involved in, in this particular find, which is the, the ARCH team out of Australia, uh, they've revealed prehistoric art and ornaments dating back 30,000 to 22,000 years ago in this area, and Homo sapiens apparently made it here again sometime prior to 50,000 years ago. So here's how this new finding came about. In 2017, a spelunker named uh, Hamrula climbed into a previously uncharted chamber in a Sulawesi cave system known as uh, Meros Pankep. It's a limestone cave system. And while he was there performing a government survey of the caves. Yeah. And if you're wondering, was Hamrula his first name or his last name? Apparently, a lot of people in Indonesia just go by one name. Right. Yeah. yeah. Just, just, uh, just the one name. Anyway, he, he, gets in, he crawls through a narrow space into this uh, new chamber and he discovers cave paintings. And the cave paintings were subsequently examined and written about by Albert et al. in Earliest Hunting Scene in Prehistoric Art, published December 2019 in Nature. And uh, again, I believe this is the same arch team out of Australia that was involved in some previous studies in the area. Mm -hmm. So as the title implies, uh, they used uh, some dating technology, uh, uranium series dating on cave popcorn or mineral deposits that uh, they're hanging over some of the motifs in the scene. Mm -hmm. And they were able to date this hunting scene back to at least 43,900 years ago. So that is 20,000 years older than the hunting scene on the walls of Francis Lascaux Caves. And coming back to the Lohenmensch, that's also 4,000 years before the Lion Man. And I realize we're talking about such <laughs> – it's, it's kind of ironic that we're talking about such big periods of time, mm -hmm. such large uh, uh, portions of human history, that it can also make 4,000 years not seem like a lot, right. which, is, which is bizarre. But uh, obviously, 4,000 years is a lot of time, and to, to set the record back 4,000 years is amazing. So uh, here's an important caveat, though. 
there's more work to do is they need to date not just the, the work overall, uh, you know, looking at the cave popcorn, but each figure individually before we can be 100% certain in all of this because there's ultimately the possibility that different portions of it have been added at different times. Yes. Uh, now, the main archaeologists were quoted saying they don't think that's the case. Right. But yeah, the, we certainly should date the different parts. I think the parts that had been that have been dated so far are just the regular animals. Mm -hmm. But the more interesting part, let, let's get into that. So yes, the overall, it depicts what seem to be individuals using spears against prey animals in a hunt. And this would be, on its own, would be an amazing find, right? It would, as it would predate any hunting scene we've seen before. But on top of this, some of the hunters appear to be um, what the, the, the researchers refer to as therianthropes or animal-human hybrids, much like the Lowenmensch. Yeah. As some of the humans appear to have tails or snouts. Right. So if this is correct, if the uh, – now, now, again, the parts that have been dated already were overlapping just the animals that were being hunted, right. which were these like buffalo-type creatures and pigs. Uh, yeah, wild pigs and then a type of buffalo called an anoa, which is also known as a midget buffalo. So it's like a water buffalo except smaller. Okay. Uh, but, and so I think they haven't dated the uh, other figures like the, the, the therianthropes or the, the human-animal hybrids mm -hmm. uh, yet. But but it looks like they're probably from the same period. We're just not certain about that. Yeah. Uh, but if so, this would this would probably predate the Lowenmensch, making this the earliest evidence we have of fantastical thinking, of like magic thinking among humans, showing human-animal hybrids, like a human hunting a buffalo with a bird's beak. Yeah. Very and, cool. Yeah, and it's it's we get into it in that, that episode about the first monster, about what this means, right? Like what, what ultimately does it mean to have in your mind, a human with a beast's head. Yeah. You know, on one hand, it is imagining something that does not exist in the real world. and But then on a, on a deeper level, it is taking what this means. What does a bird mean? What are the ideas that, that uh, just the mere symbol of a bird summons? Mm -hmm. And then our idea, too, of a human being. What happens when these, uh, this mix of symbols and meanings collide? What new ideas are born out of that collision? Absolutely. So it, it basically shows that, that people from this time period, uh, you know, 4,000 years earlier than we thought, may have been dealing with this kind of complex thinking, mashing up of symbols, ideas, and concepts, concepts even taking on a humanoid form. Mm -hmm. Becky Ferreira wrote an excellent piece on this for the New York Times. And, uh, you know, she, she points out in this that um, the, the researchers believe, too, that these may have been animal spirit helpers, uh, something that you would commonly find in shamanistic beliefs. Uh, so, yeah, there's a possibility that we're dealing with, uh, you know, animism and shamanism mm -hmm. here. Right. It looks like it could be, again, this is just interpretation, but it looks like it could be a scene depicting maybe a game drive yeah. where uh, so hunters are shown driving prey animals into an ambush by other hunters, but that some of the hunters appear to be human, others appear to be human-animal hybrids. So that means they could be depicting, yeah, like these these otherworldly spirit helpers that come in to aid the humans in the hunt. Right. Like, well, even if they are depictions of humans dressed up as animals or partial animals, uh -huh. they would have engaged in an actual, like, literal rite. Like, even that would reveal 
the idea that this kind of complex thinking is possible. Totally, yeah. Now, the researchers also note that these paintings are, are quite fragile and the art is fading, uh, quote, at an alarming rate and for unknown reasons. Mm. So it's going to be interesting to see how this develops uh, uh, further because it does seem like there's a – you know, there's there's a half life in play here, uh, yeah. and, uh, and and it's kind of a, a question of how much can we figure out about them before the the work is degraded. Yeah, and it also makes you wonder about how much other wonderful art from the prehistoric world is just already lost and we'll never see it. Yeah, it's but on the tragic. But, but on the optimistic side, how how many more caverns like this are there out in the world that just haven't haven't been breached or haven't been breached in a terribly long time? Yeah, that's really exciting. All right, uh, I think we should take a quick break, but we'll be right back with another update. All right, we're back. Uh, so this update follows up on our previous podcasts about uh, the first interstellar visitor, the first object from another star outside our solar system, which is known as Oumuamua. Uh, and so a brief refresher on Oumuamua before we get into the, the updates on it. So on October 19th, 2017, the Pan-STARRS-1 telescope in Hawaii first registered a small, previously uncatalogued object zooming through the solar system. They got other observatories uh, to uh, to confirm it. And uh, due to the trajectory of the object, it was clear that this thing was not orbiting the sun like everything else we see in the solar system is. Instead, it was slingshotting around the sun, coming in from outside the sun's gravitational influence. And it seemed like it was probably a rocky object that somehow got ejected from another star system in the galaxy. And uh, there were a lot of reasons that this thing was very interesting. So I'll just run through a few uh, few of its attributes real quick. Uh, there was its speed when it made its nearest approach to the sun around September 9th of 2017. It was going uh, 196,000 miles per hour or about 87.3 kilometers per second. And uh, by the time we, we had this information, Oumuamua was already going. It was like – you know, yeah. it was already headed back out of the solar system at like 70,000 miles per hour, uh, already past the orbit of Jupiter. In another four years, it's going to be past the orbit of Neptune. It's just going to be gone. It's just yeah. going off into in interstellar space. So the flyby had been completed. <laughs> yeah. It, it, and it had already passed its nearest point by – by the time we saw it. Mm -hmm. um, so the trajectory was very weird. It, it entered the uh, plane of the solar system, the ecliptic plane, at an inclination of like 123 degrees, so sort of coming straight down from above or up from below, however you want to think about it. Uh, it passed inside the orbit of Mercury, slingshotted around the sun, then went back out. So, uh, we, you know, we are ships passing in the night. We are never going to see Oumuamua again. Now, one of the things that really captured uh, people's attention about it was its strange shape. Oumuamua is so small and so far away that it appears as a point-like object on our telescopes. And that means we can't directly see any details about the surface or the shape of the object. But, of course, there are ways of analyzing it uh, to draw some conclusions about its shape and surface features. Like we can study the variations in the flickering brightness of uh, the object to create what's known as a light curve analysis. Basically, this analyzes patterns of light intensity from this point-like object in order to draw conclusions about its shape and its spin and stuff. And uh, when we did that, what, what scientists found is that it appears to have something like a 10 to 1 length to width 
width uh, and depth ratio. So you, you can imagine a cylindrical or tube-shaped object like 10 times longer than it is wide. Um, and uh, according to, uh, to NASA, it could be up to about a quarter mile long, maybe like 400 meters and only about 40 meters wide. Also, its motion is not spinning the way uh, you might expect it to be, but it's tumbling. So it's not rotating around a principal axis. It's got a chaotic tumbling pattern, tumbling once every like seven and a half hours or so. So it's like a tumbling cigar. Yeah, uh, often characterized as a cigar. Uh, and it looks like its surface may have a red coloration, which would be consistent with objects in our solar system like asteroids that have been bombarded with cosmic rays a lot. So th that's not all that surprising. Uh, but the question is, where did it come from? We don't know for sure. It, it has this uh, uh, approach trajectory that makes it look like it's roughly coming from the star Vega in the constellation of Lyra. But, of course, like Vega was not – there when it would have been coming from that region. So you'd have to sort of play back the movie of, of stars moving around in the galaxy in order to figure out where it actually came from. So we haven't figured that out yet. And then we did a follow-up episode. Uh, our first episode uh, on Oumuamua was in December of 2017. Then we had an episode uh, after that responding mainly to a paper by the Harvard physicist Avi Loeb and a co-author named Shmuel Bialy noting this weird speed boost gained by the object as it left the solar system. It seemed to be speeding up as it was speeding away. And uh, uh, Loeb and, and Bialy argued that this boost in speed was consistent with the object being a light sail or a solar sail, which would imply an artificial origin. Uh, but I think our conclusion was, well, you know, you, you can't totally rule it out, but there's no really strong evidence yet that it's aliens. This is an interesting paper, but it, it did receive some criticism from people who said, you know, they're jumping to conclusions. Right. Right, right. It would be an outstanding statement to say it was aliens and we really need outstanding evidence yeah. for that to, to, to be the, the statement we make. Totally. And if it were like an alien probe, for one thing, we'd probably expect it to be emitting some kind of radio signal, mm -hmm. right? Uh, we, we had some radio observatories try to listen to it and found nothing. There right. were no patterned radio signals at all. Uh, so there's no indication that it was aliens really except for this interesting thing about it speeding up as it moved away, um, which could have also been due to radiation pressure if it had certain other attributes, but they were saying it didn't have the attributes that would make it, you know, the kind of object that would have been powered away by the, the solar radiation. Now, I remember us talking about the possibility that it was a, an out-of-control dead ship, that, <laughs> that uh, if there was any kind of life force around, uh, on board it or even a, like a, a will or a purpose that it had all been, um, you know, eradicated a long time ago. So sure. it's essentially the, you know, the ship from Alien. Uh, tumbling through the uh, th through the galaxy. Yeah, uh, which would be great, but even the ship in Alien was emitting a distress beacon, true, which yes. uh, we would have detected. But yeah, you know, who knows? I, I, I like to stay in the in the realm of can't totally rule it out, but won't go there. Right. And again, we'll also never know because yeah. it's gone. <laughs> All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with the update. All right, we're back. Uh, so one of the weirdest things about Oumuamua was its apparent shape. This, uh, it was this extremely elongated cigar shape that was inferred from this light curve analysis. 
Obviously, that figured into a lot of the speculation about alien probes and so forth, right? You know, you see a cigar-shaped object in space. That's not normal. Most objects are not shaped that way. So people wanted to say, oh, yeah, that's got to be some kind of probe. Uh, but uh, are we sure that that's what we're looking at? Are we sure that it is this cigar-shaped rocky object like we've been assuming? I came across uh, some interesting reports about a paper that offered a different way of interpreting the data about the geometry. And so this is a more recent development that's from a scientist. Uh, I, I'm sorry. I'm going to do my best to pronounce his name. It's Dr. Zdenek Sekanina. And uh, Sekanina is a Czech-American astronomer who has worked with NASA JPL for decades. A lot of his research has focused on space dust, meteors, and comets. He's actually done research on the Tunguska event, oh. uh, as well as Halley's Comet and uh, and uh, the giant impact that happened on Jupiter in the 1990s, the, the Shoemaker-Levy Comet. Oh, yes. So what was his take? Well, remember, humans never saw Oumuamua when it was on its approach, right, when it was coming into its perihelion uh, with the sun. Our, our telescopes never picked it up until it, it had already slingshotted around the sun and was on its exit trajectory to leave the solar system. Uh, now, of course, astrophysicists can still infer its total trajectory based on the small sliver of it that we see. You know, you can roughly tell where it came from. But uh, Sekinina offers an interesting argument about Oumuamua's shape and nature. He argues that the Oumuamua we registered with our telescopes is not the original object, but rather it is a remnant, hmm. a material cosmic wraith that was left behind after an interstellar comet passed its perihelion and disintegrated in the process. So Sekinina's paper was published on the archive preprint server in January of 2019. As always, you know, a lot of physics and astrophysics papers show up on on archive uh, these days. But just to remind you again, that's not a peer-reviewed journal. That's just like a lot of stuff in, in this realm happens in those kind of places these right. days and just gets hashed out on the internet. Um, so the, that's a preprint server, not peer-reviewed. Uh, but his analysis does seem to be uh, interesting and, and from what I can tell pretty sound. Like uh, to read his words, he believes the evidence indicates, quote, that also surviving could be a sizable fragment resembling a devolatilized aggregate of loosely bound dust grains that may have exotic shape, peculiar rotational properties, and extremely high porosity. So, uh, so weird shape, uh, tumbling, uh, being very porous and not very dense, uh, devolatilized, of course, because as it passed close to the sun, it lost all of its volatile molecules like water and stuff and all that stuff would get turned to gas or vaporized, gassed out and released. And then what you'd have behind is this, this object, this collection of dust grains. Um, so to continue with his uh, words, so that was all acquired, quote, in the course of the disintegration event. Given that the brightness of Oumuamua's parent could not possibly equal or exceed the Bortle survival limit, and I'll get back to that uh, with, with Mr. Bortle, uh, there are reasons to believe that it suffered from the same fate as do the frail comets. The post-perihelion observations then do not refer to the object that was entering the inner solar system in early 2017, as is tacitly assumed, but to its debris. Hmm. So here, uh, when, he, when he mentions uh, Bortle, the Bortle limit, He's referring to existing research by the American amateur astronomer John E. Bortle showing that faint comets with very elongated orbits that pass within one Earth distance from the sun will usually tend to shatter right before the closest part of their orbit with the sun. 
Uh, quote, the object is a desiccated comet that lost most of its water and gases when it swooped close to the sun. It's like a skeleton of the original body with all the ice out. Hmm. Uh, Sekanina also writes that consistent with what we've seen in a couple of other frail comets that shattered like this when they passed close to the sun, uh, uh, quote, as a monstrous fluffy dust aggregate released in the recent explosive event, Oumuamua should be of strongly irregular shape, tumbling, not outgassing, and subjected to the effects of solar radiation pressure consistent with observation. So he's basically saying like an object like this that came close to the sun sort of blew apart because it was getting heated up by the sun as, as it was passing around, uh, suffered this disintegration event and then continued to fly on as this remnant piece it would match all of the stuff we've seen so far, hmm. uh, including the stuff that uh, that, I, that Avi Loeb was talking about with it uh, being subjected to the effects of solar radiation pressure, which would help it speed up as it made its way out of the solar system. Now, there's one uh, – so if uh, Sekinina is correct, one implication is that if such a shattering occurred – and if we don't know exactly when it occurred, this complicates our attempts to locate the origin of the object, right? As best I can tell, like, it still looks like it probably came from outside the solar system, but it makes it harder to pinpoint, like, which other star it could oh. have come from if at some point it, like, shattered and exploded and started tumbling. And now we – the part of its uh, path that we can see is only after that happened. Does it complicate – the idea that it could have been a spaceship does it does it make does it help people out if they really want it to be a spaceship or is this uh, I, I this think hurt their case if Sekinina is correct I think it is definitely not a spaceship mm. uh, this would pretty much completely rule that out unless it was a spaceship that was made of the stuff that comets are usually made of mm. so you're saying there's a chance <laughs> <laughs> So is Sekinina right? Uh, we're not sure yet. I, I love the idea of this object as like this tumbling spindle of dust grains held together by gravity left over after a comet kind of exploded or disintegrated uh, from passing close to the sun. Uh, there's actually one more development in Oumuamua news that uh, I also thought was interesting. So in the wake of the discovery of Oumuamua, some astronomers postulated that Maybe it's just that interstellar objects are traveling through our solar system all the time. They're much more common than we thought. You know, maybe that's why we're seeing yeah, this. The idea being that we, we're just reaching the point where we have the capabilities to observe these things. And if that's the case, this is not going to be the, just the singular uh, interstellar traveler. We will start seeing more of them, not because they're suddenly occurring. They've, the idea is they've been occurring all along, but we are suddenly uh, in, at a point where we can observe them. Right. So it's not that it's super rare. It's just It just happened to be the first one we caught with our telescopes. Uh, well, now it appears that Oumuamua is not alone in being confirmed as an interstellar object. Uh, I was just reading a good Nat Geo article by Michael Greshko from October of 2019 about the discovery of another confirmed interstellar object called uh, Borisov. This was discovered on August 30th, 2019 by a Crimean amateur astronomer named Gennady Borisov. And unlike Oumuamua, Borisov was caught before its perihelion. So there is a chance that it could answer some questions that Oumuamua left open. Uh, so far, it appears to be pretty similar to comets from within our solar system, which is interesting. So maybe a comet from another star actually looks a lot like comets from our own 
solar system. Uh, early analysis revealed it was spitting out a lot of cyanide as it traveled, uh, but apparently local comets do that as well. It appears to have a pretty normal cometary core, a uh, solid nucleus within a cloud of gas and dust. And the er earlier estimates put the core somewhere between like half a mile and two miles wide, so like 0 0.8 to 3.2 kilometers. Uh, that was in October. Borisov actually passed its perihelion in early December of 2019. So I was reading some of the recent reports about uh, these observations. There was a NASA news feature that had images created by the Hubble Space Telescope uh, of the object as it was near the sun. I've got these here for you, Robert. It, it looks suitably haunting. Yes, uh, it, it does. It, its chemical composition appears to be, again, roughly the same as comets inside our solar system. And uh, we, we got a better idea of exactly what its size was. Hubble came up with the the accurate figure of about uh, 3,200 feet or about 975 meters across for the nucleus, which, you know, is roughly a kilometer or so. Uh, so very cool. Maybe we're going to start seeing these things all the time. Yeah, it's it's one of the it's, – it's, it's kind of like a revelation that is uh, at once uh, amazing, but also maybe uh, in some ways a little uh, – Oh, I'm not going to say terrifying. I don't want to say that, but <laughs> but it is like this this this. I mean, this is like space exploration in general. The perpetual yeah. understanding of a of a larger cosmos, uh, and the, the more that we understand, the more new questions we have about how everything works. Uh, so um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how just the next year of uh, observation pans out. You know, will we see more uh, interstellar objects? And if so, how many, you know? Uh, ultimately, like, what is going to be the, uh, you know, uh, realistic rate of interstellar objects passing through our solar system? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but I can't wait to find out. Yeah. I can't wait to get some really weird ones. I guess if there's anything disappointing here, I mean, I, I, I love this discovery, but if we're seeing, okay, so a comet from another star looks very much like, at least so far, like comets from our own neighborhood, mm -hmm. uh, when do we get a super weird one? When do we get one that, I don't know, you know, comes from a star made out of mice or something? Right, right. I mean, it takes me back to our, our, um, our recent episode discussing um, New Horizons and Pluto, you know, mm -hmm. and how there's always that uh, – there's always that that risk that that the thing that you want to study will be kind of boring, mm -hmm. but uh, you know, oftentimes the the universe has has has, uh, has weirdness in store for us. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of weirdness we see. I think maybe one thing we've learned from doing the show is that even if something looks uh, maybe kind of boring at first, if you look at it deep enough, it gets weird. It does. It definitely gets weird. All right. So there you have it. Uh, again, just a couple of updates on some past episodes. Uh, we may do more of these in the future. Uh, we'll see. Uh, but we, uh, you know, I think we are in the. We're recording this before the new year. I think this is what the first episode of the new year. I'm not sure. Maybe so. So if it is, happy new year. If not, um, you know. I guess just happy Tuesday or Thursday, but <laughs> in either in either case, uh, we are looking forward to bringing you a lot of new episodes in 2020. Uh, we're looking forward to getting into a lot of weird topics, and uh, yeah, we're looking forward to the journey, and we hope you'll stick with us through that journey. In the meantime, uh, if you head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com, that'll shoot you over to a place where you can find episodes of the show, and you can find episodes of the show wherever you get podcasts these days. Uh, you know, whichever one feels uh, like the best fit for you personally, I guess. And whatever that uh, website happens to be, make sure that you subscribe and rate and review because that helps the show out in the long run. Huge thanks, as always, to our 
excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you'd like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.